Hello and welcome to Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely deep literary merit with your classy and sophisticated hosts, Alexandra Rowland, Freya Mask, and Jennifer Mace. On today's episode, we're discussing Bridge of Birds by Barry Hewitt, Let Maps to Others by KJ Parker, and A Conspiracy of Truths by Alexandra Rowland. And welcome to episode 21, Believing the Little Lies. I'm Alex, the myth of Isis searching for the dismembered body of Osiris. <laughs> I'm Freya, and I'm Freya. Yes. Or more specifically, <laughs> I am the tale of Thor going in disguise as Freya to retrieve his stolen hammer. It's very appropriate. I am Macy, and I am the story of Persephone and her six pomegranate seeds. We are three redheaded fantasy authors. And I just want to thank my fellow serpents for so generously allowing me to wallow in some of my favorite things. Uh, I picked all the tent poles this week because today I'm back on my bullshit, making them talk about myths and stories. Uh, but before we get all that, uh, what are we reading, fellow serpents? Well, apart from reading all of Alex's chosen bullshit and <laughs> attempting yes, to did. fight my way to the end of the draft of my current novel, I read recently In the Vanishers Palace by Aliette de Bodart. Mm-hmm which is her new novella. It is an FF retelling of Beauty and the Beast, is certainly how it's been sold. Uh, it's got Vietnamese post-apocalyptic dragons. It has a palace made of Escher space. It is also a gothic about a woman coming to a strange house. It is also a governess romance about someone having to look after someone's annoying slash adorable children. It's got a lot going on. It's really good. Elliot is kind of a badass. How did that fit? Well, if you think of it like an Escher space painting, it oh kind gosh. of folded onto itself and somehow it all fit into a novella length, which was very impressive. I am cool. impressed. And let's see, uh, I was on call for my day job until 10pm every day this week, and this is only a week since the last time, so I have not read much of anything, but I did go back and read a bunch of Kakashi Yuka fic by particularly Maldoror and the Hoyden and some other folks because I was feeling in need of some like ninja teacher soft romance. I never got into that corner of Naruto fandom. I mean, I think it's very strange the way that some fandoms will develop a particular dynamic for a particular pairing that really doesn't have anything necessarily to do with that pairing. It's just what the fandom, fandom has decided on. Would you call it a fanish mythology? Oh, 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 look at you, fancy. But Kakashi Iruka tends to be like soft and like slow romance, Ugh. which is weird given. That... Listen, <laughs> friend. Sorry, it was the word soft. <laughs> oh, no. Nothing wrong with that. And I teetered on the brink of falling into fanfic hell for Venom. Oh, God. No. And I'm not ashamed. No. No. It's it's 2018. No. We can all no. comfortably admit that we have read some monster fucking fic in our time. It's mainstream. But it is. Tom Hardy falling into a crate of lob into a pool of lobsters and biting one of them. Like, Nobody's saying he has to fuck the lobsters, Macy. He wasn't fucking the lobsters. It was he was hungry. 
It was lobster vor, okay? So I understand. I haven't seen the movie, obviously. (laughs) Uh, I just fell into the fanfic hole because, like, everyone on my Tumblr dash was going like, hey, let's fuck this monster. And I went, sure, okay. Uh, If you want to know particularly which fics I read, just go to the porn listing on AO3, sort by kudos, start at the top and read about a page and a half. And that's where I ran out of steam. All the fics right now are kind of samey. We really, really are the Alex is back on their bullshit episode. You know it. <laughs> I mean, this is like the bull Dorian thing all over again, only like weirder somehow, which I'm impressed by. I am a parody of myself. <laughs> anyway. I have never not been on brand. My agent is delighted with me. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. Uh, I also uh, read some other things that were not filthy porn. Uh, <laughs> I finished a draft of a book and sent it off to my beta readers. And then I pirouetted straight off into the book of my heart, the book that I have been longing to write for like a year now. And that's going to be my NaNoWriMo project. So I am delighted. I'm going Uh to be in a great mood for the next six weeks. I give you Mm -hmm. two weeks. I think we're all going to be in great moods for a given value of great that involves us all crying loudly about NaNoWriMo. It's true. Yes. But on topic, so what is up with the title this week? Why are we believing these lies? Well, so this comes from a quote that I think Alex actually read to our listeners way back in episode seven um, from Terry Pratchett about uh, how humans have to believe the little lies in order to gain the practice to believe the big ones. So you believe the little lies like Father Christmas in order to learn how to believe lies like truth and justice. And this episode is all about the myths and legends and lies that cultures teach themselves with. And we have three tentpoles that all kind of examine that from very different angles, really. And I think we're going to jump right into introducing those so that we can talk about them throughout the episode rather than get to them a bit later this time. Yes, yes. Um, I also just want to say, like, I picked these three tentpoles because one of them is my book, (laughs) which we'll tell you about in a second. And two of them are things that I really, really genuinely love. But I do want to warn the listeners, if you're thinking of adding them to your TBR piles, they are deeply problematic um and i apologize for that they're both varying levels of misogynistic (laughs) and one of them may be like some severe cultural appropriation but i don't know enough about the culture to make that call nevertheless they are two uh tentpoles that i really really enjoy and love and i think that they have some useful things to say so i am going to introduce you Mm -hmm. to one of them and that one is bridge of birds by barry hughart it's a shortish novel uh a fantasy novel set in uh ancient china and it is about a man called number 10 ox and a old sage who has a slight flaw in his character (laughs) lee kao and Uh, Number 10 Ox's village is attacked by a plot-relevant sickness, and which I won't tell you about right now, and all the children between ages like 8 and 13 fall deathly ill, and uh, Number 10 Ox and Li Kao have to, Master Li, have to go on a wild adventure across China to find a mythical ginseng root of power to heal these children. And it's very much about myths as 
receptacles of knowledge and myths as real things and also as stories. I think also myths as twisted receptacles of truth. Yes. And how you have to interpret them and disentangle them like riddles yes. in order to find out what's really underneath. Yes. And it's also, when we say mythological and like epic adventures, this is very much like, I felt like I was reading um, a Hercules legend, kind yes. of. Yes, because they have like tasks that they have to do to yes. complete other tasks. And... and it's incredibly self-referential, which I don't like. So the second tentpole that we read for this episode is a novella by K.J. Parker called Let Maps to Other. Let Maps to Others, even. I can words. It's been a long week, okay? Um, <laughs> it's, been, it's been a really long week. But this was a novella about the fantasy equivalent of the search for the lost city of Atlantis, I would call it. It's about a scholar whose father started up a business concern based on a single person's report of a very wealthy continent that he had managed to visit once and come back and solve them an entire cargo of lemons for basically a lifetime's fortune. And so three generations, four generations down the line, our main character is one of the foremost experts in all these fragments of lore and legend about this lost continent. And this story goes into their search for the continent and trying to figure out whether any of the legends were real and some fun stuff with plagiarism and faking it that accidentally is not faking it. Mm -hmm. So it's very much a story about telling the truth by accident, I would say, and the ways that obsessions with a legend can become almost more real than the thing itself. That's a good way of putting That's it. That's a really great way of putting it, yeah. yeah. Nice job. Gold star for Macy. Yes, Let's just like good. give Macy a slow clap right there. That was fantastic. I'm like, hey, it was, I do wish to confiscate all women from both the previous authors. Yes. 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 Th th this goes um, uh, This goes without saying. Um, we will steal their women's um, and 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 we will treat them better and we will be nicer to them. However, <laughs> the next tentpole, if I do say so myself, did some pretty good things with women's. You know, the next one's a pretty like obscure author. I'm not sure that anyone will have heard of them. No, no, very, very obscure. No, we just haven't obscure. to have read this book recently, but none of us can recall. Who yeah, it's it was a strange coincidence that I'm not sure how that happened. But, you know, mm. since we're here, we might as well talk about. It, I guess. So this is yeah. This, yeah. Yep. So this is a book <laughs> by the title of <laughs> A Conspiracy of Truths, which came out yesterday, November sixth. On voting day. On voting day. Yes, it did come out on election day. So I hope that you all, one, went out and voted and two, bought this book. This book does have elections in it, but we don't see them. Yes. So this book This book is all about the importance of democracy, really. Yeah, absolutely. So what this book is about, this book by our own dear darling Alexandra Rowland is about a traveling storyteller by the name of Chant who gets himself accidentally arrested for witchcraft and then through various misadventures in the legal system finds himself further arrested for spying. And it is all about how he manages to semi-purposefully but mostly accidentally cause a civil war and the downfall of an entire nation from inside a prison cell. Yep. It is, as Alex has said, a fantasy book about fake news, which makes it very topical yes. and also extremely entertaining. I'm so impressed that you remembered my entire elevator pitch. Thank you. <laughs> this is what happens so when touched. something gets thrown at you many, many, many times. 
<laughs> I may have mentioned it a few times, yes. Maybe once or twice. Maybe once or twice. It's my job. It's my job. It is very it's impressive true. how much you managed to convey from with this whole just from within a prison cell thing. As someone who doesn't really like writing action scenes and much prefers writing conversations, it's a great trick for a book. Just don't, don't <laughs> let your protagonist leave a room and just have people come to them and have conversations. It's amazing. Oh, there is, there is quite a lot of action in this book. Oh, yeah. In fairness. There's lots of, like, stabbings. There's way more stabbing than you are convey. But there's a lot of, like, here's a long conversation in which I told a story. Here's two paragraphs in which three people got murdered. But I didn't see that. So, oh, well. <laughs> Back to me. Yeah, this is not at all not at all representative of the importance of particular author places on various pieces of, of, of the toolkit of a writer. Indeed. Here's the thing. Can we detour briefly to, uh-huh. for me to tell you why I put him in a, a jail cell the whole time? Uh-huh. And here's why. Because I have a... Um, I don't want to use the word crutch because it's kind of ableist, but there is a tool that I lean on harder than I lean on my other tools in my toolkit. And that is that when I, when the plot starts running out of steam, I just move the characters to a different physical location <laughs> and i wanted to break myself of that habit to be fair and you so did that tried... like five times anyway you did i know i you still did, did it i still did it because <laughs> then i just move him from a different jail cell or from one jail cell to a different jail cell and that's still yeah so i was not actually able to uh successfully do that but at least i did kind of try <laughs> One of the things that you do do in this book is use myth a lot for conveying information. And I think that that's something yes. that all three of our tentpoles do, particularly across history and spanning time. Yeah, all of them are about about information that is being portrayed and it is never being portrayed as entirely accurate. Like even with, mm. with Bridge of Birds, there's a lot of stories being told that are understood to be myths within a myth. And mm-hmm. Chant is always telling stories that have some kind of meaning, but they're always being presented as just, oh, I'm just telling a story to entertain you or to give you an example. And even in the short story in Let Maps to Others, there's always this sense that because what's being spoken of is a legend, and also because of the commentary it's making about academia, everything that is a source that is not you know, a, a perfect primary source is inherently mm-hmm. unreliable. And so it's about, it's conveying something, but you don't know how much it's conveying. Speaking of, of not perfect sources, I was literally just reading a Twitter thread about the discovery of various graffiti in Pompeii that suggests that the eruption happened in October, not in August. And the reason we think that it's in August is because of an imperfect copy of Pliny's letters. Oh, interesting. What is the significance of it happening in October rather than August? Like, does that change anything about yes. what we... It's pretty cool. They were talking about how um, if the if the eruption had taken place in August, it would have disrupted the grain trade to Rome and killed a whole bunch of tourists to the area. Because in August, it was a bit like going to um, going to New Orleans for Mardi Gras, and that didn't I'm happen. I'm sorry, it just like blew my mind to think that there were tourists in Roman times, uh-huh. but like, of course there were because people have been the same forever. Right? Um, it's, but, that's amazing. But it's super cool. Like all of this, all of the things, I think we wanted to talk a little bit during this episode, not just about the tentpoles, but as mythology, as something that you need to build into a world if you're trying to world build, particularly for fantasy books. But it blows my mind to think about um, the way that the ancient Greeks 
were like the, the like zero AD Greeks were telling legends about the fall of Troy, which were legends about actual historical battles. And so like the myths that they told were historic history. And this is very similar to what happens, like Freya was saying, with the mistaken academia in Let Maps to Others. Like you can't tell where the myth ends and the real academic history begins. Right. And that's super cool. That is so cool. It's a tool and you have imperfect tools before you've sort of developed them. And I think the academic study of history was definitely something that had to be carefully developed and honed over time, just like the scientific method had to be developed and honed and experimented with until we had something that worked pretty well. And before we had the history tools, all we had was story tools. And that was the only way of preserving knowledge in that way and we talked about this with our um thing about you know our episode about the storytellers and who tells the story and if you're thinking about history being turned into myth then you've got someone who is processing a historical event through the lens of their own mythology by saying well clearly this battle mm -hmm. was won and this battle was lost because this god was on this side and this god was mm -hmm. on this side and this is all the things that can't be proven even at the time but if you can tell it as a story inserting the gods into it that turns it into myth mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And it makes yeah. it more interesting uh, to remember and to know what happened. Yeah, because um, I and I'm absolutely sure that we've talked about this in previous episodes, but human the human brain is primarily optimized for pattern recognition. Mm -hmm. History is not really a story because life is not a story because life doesn't operate by story rules. So you kind of have to frame it in story terms to get it to jive with how the human brain works because we want to put it in story structure just mm -hmm. sort of naturally. So if we're thinking about pattern recognition, this is part of why um, story is such a good tool for bringing knowledge forwards as well. Like if we want to preserve knowledge for future generations, uh, a lot of the times we think about doing that through story. But I think that we've talked in the past about asking why someone is telling you a story. Um, in order to decide whether or not you should trust them, whether this myth is something worth internalizing and examining, or whether they're trying to convince you of something in their own interests, <coughs> chant. So why do people believe in stories so easily? And why can chant so easily tear a country apart using them? Well, like I said about the, the pattern recognition and the human brain being optimized for that, it's an evolutionary advantage and i have recently written a article about this which i'm not sure will have been posted when this episode goes up but hopefully if so we'll link it in the the thing so the human brain being uh, optimized for stories is an evolutionary advantage because it makes it easier for us to remember which berries are poisonous that's where it starts hmm. it makes fewer people die and that kind of has a chain reaction onto a bunch of other things. It makes it easier for us to construct civilization around ourselves because once we like patterns, we like order. And order is the foundation of civilization. Mm. So if you show someone a story, their brain sort of wants to latch onto it. And a lot of times their brain will take it and run whether or not they want it to. 
Right. And it takes quite a lot of effort to reject a story. This is one of the reasons why it is so exhausting to be on Twitter sometimes, because you're getting so many false positives of like, this is a story, this is a story, this is a story. And your ha- your brain is having to work to deny them and reject them and do more work to filter them. I think we see this in Let Maps to Others as well, where the main character So halfway through the book, we're going to spoil this short story for you, friends. Um, I apologize, but not really, because if you've been with us for 21 episodes, you know this is how we roll. (laughs) But in Let Maps to Others, the main character halfway through the book is given a copy of a pristine manuscript with all of the answers that he could ever possibly want to the central conundrum of his life. And he's given to it by, is given to him by his bitterest rival who shows it to him, who lets him read it, and who burns it to ashes in front of him. And I loved that. That was a delightful scene. Wasn't it? I do maintain that I ship those two with each other because they were actually people. Anyway. (laughs) We can make snarky comments about how KJ Parker is terrible at writing women because (laughs) he is. But the point I was going to make was after this happens, the main character decides that he can remember the manuscript well enough And so he recreates it, he forges it. And he has created this story that seizes hold in the entire of his university and the nobility and everyone around him. And he promptly, I didn't say immediately, loses control. The story has more legs than he does and he cannot rein it in, he cannot stop it. It's too late, you're just gonna hold on. Yeah, and I think Chant kind of does the same thing to the queens a little bit, but he Chant maybe, absolutely does. He a tiny bit more should have known what he was doing. Yeah, I think honestly, I think he was kind of counting on. So Chant throws a lot of spaghetti at the wall and isn't <laughs> quite sure what is going to stick, but he's counting on some of it sticking, and he is kind of gambling on the stuff that sticks if it can get away from him, might cause enough rampage and ruin that he can quietly slip out uh, in the dead of night, which is a very classically chant thing to do. I've been trying to think about whether there's a way in which Bridge of Birds does this thing with a runaway story. And I think it's more that the story is larger than the people who are in it think it is. Yes. And certainly it starts off as one sort of story and the person who's telling it, I think, is... He's unusual for the narrators of these stories because both Chant mm-hmm. and the narrator in the KJ Parker are willing liars. They both mm-hmm. are. They're being honest with you, the reader of this story, of course, in inverted comments. Are they? But they are both storytellers and liars. And they'll tell you, well, here's the lie I told about this, you know, legend and this created document, or and here's all the lies that I told to these people to get myself out of jail. But the narrator of the third one. You can't quite tell. You get the sense that he is a straightforward person telling you the story, how it happened, but he is still living in a story that is out of his control and he doesn't start to recognise the shape of it until near the end. I think mm-hmm. that you're totally right that, like, the the thing that's hap- the things that are happening to number 10, Ox, are just completely wild and off the wall. They are the labours of Pericles. Um, but it's not number 10 Ox's fault. He didn't try to do any of this nonsense. He would be quite happy just lifting heavy objects at home. He'd be very happy just like hauling masterly around you know on his back. You know who he is. You know who he is. Hmm. He's John Watson, isn't he? Oh, absolutely. 100% yes. Great. So episode's over. Macy has made the central point of that. Great. We're done. <laughs> but I think 
With regards to the um, stories taking over the consciousness, I know you use the it's a story about fake news tagline a bunch for conspiracy. I would say after reading it, I'm not so sure that I believe that because fake news works quite a lot differently. Like chant is just lying to individuals, really. Apart from the prison guards, maybe. Well, there's the propaganda that he publishes after spoilers later in the book. Yes. That doesn't get a lot of page time because Chant is not really interested in talking about the work for hire that he has done. (laughs) Right. I mean, I would say that um, the core of the book is more him harnessing the paranoia of individuals in power than it is fake news. But I think that all of these concepts come into play with... um, the human willingness to believe the story of uh, vaccinations causing an illness because it's a story and stories dig their claws in more than science does. And that that is yes. one of the real huge threats, I would say, to modern life is how easy it is to tell a story and how hard it is to disprove a story. Absolutely. And that's also one of the problems with modern politics as well, because the Republican Party is fucking great at stories. Like, they're asshole monsters, but they know how story works. And the Democrats, I am a staunch Democrat, we're very bad at that. Mm -hmm. We sit there, like, babbling facts, and we don't do a lot of, like, appealing to people's, like, base emotions and... God, please just get anyone in the Democratic Party to know anything about how stories work, because that's how you win hearts. But Freya, democracy is a meritocracy. Why did I say Freya? I meant Alex. I'm sorry. Oh. (laughs) I'm not awake. You were going to say something. Go on. Is it like that in Australia as well? I know y'all have some exciting politics. Honestly, our politics is so ridiculous at the moment. The, the story is essentially, oh, another leadership spill. Okay. And everyone just kind of sighs and nobody takes anybody seriously and the world just keeps on turning. Uh-oh. But it's true that I think part of the problem is that if you are on the side of facts, uh, but more generally as we're talking about things like vaccines and climate change, if you are on the side of science, scientists are notoriously not very good at story because the answer is always mm-hmm. it's more complicated than that. Because if you're doing science right, then you're always accepting the fact that your story can be changed by other evidence and Mm -hmm. that there are nuances and that nothing is as simple as it seems and that you want to explain all the methodology. And this is why scientists have to be trained in science communication, because you need Mm -hmm. a way to translate your evidence and to translate your findings that does not immediately become reported as chocolate cures cancer. Yeah. (laughs) And what you have actually found is that this molecule that is found in chocolate has been shown to stop a particular signaling pathway in a pancreatic cancer in a rat model. Yeah. And, as, and if it did the other way around, and if it accelerated it, then you've got chocolate causes cancer. And those are both very emotive stories that have almost nothing to do with the actual science. And this is where we run into trouble in the attempts to translate things. Yeah. But this is a little bit out of the, uh, I mean, I out think of the scope of this particular episode. It isn't, it isn't, because uh, what it does, if you're trying to use some of these tools when you're building a fantasy world, The real world is a great set of examples, a source of examples for how mythology shapes culture. Yes. I would agree. Actually, I think I would agree in that it can tell you a lot, especially about the fears of a culture. Mm -hmm. 
because if you've got something about you know what are the what are the emotive stories that are being told you have a look at the key myths and even the key stories that will become memes in a culture it will say what do these people value what do they concerns what is their character and i think alex you did a lot of world building of that sort yes in conspiracy because chant is telling stories that he has gathered from all around the world and he has a lot of very uncomplimentary things to say about the particular culture he finds himself imprisoned <laughs> in because he is constantly comparing them to this other vast rainbow of cultures that he has in his head through the medium of the stories that they tell Yes. So briefly, uh, if we're talking about like some of the world building aspects of this, um, I do want to mention that if you are setting out to do this, just sort of be aware of cultural appropriation. And I've talked to people about this in great depth because it's something that matters to me. I don't want to be stealing someone's stories that matter a lot to them in their heart. That's a not great thing to do. Chance kind of has a conversation about this in a conspiracy with his apprentice and his apprentice says something offhand about how oh people are everywhere are all the same which on one level is kind of true but Chant finds this extremely objectionable because he thinks that people are everywhere are different and that's why he has a job as a Chant because he gets to wander around and see the ways that they are different and understand people and stories in their original context and then take them somewhere else and explain them to someone else. Uh, so when you're you're coming up with these mythologies, like you are obviously drawing on tropes and archetypes and things from real world mythology that you are familiar with. And the best way to do that is to not just take the sort of shallow and surface level details of something it's to look at the heart of the story like we were talking about the emotive core of it mm -hmm. uh so when you're building myths i have just come up with like three brief steps for what myths do for us step one is that they explain the world around us uh we have mentioned that before um how we got fire why the sun rises every day Step two is explaining where we came from. This is where it starts getting emotive because it starts building a personal identity for mm -hmm. your in-group. And then step three is to explain the great why. And I'm sure that nobody has any idea of what this means because it's fairly vague, but intentionally so. The great why can be why we are who we are or why we are battling those people across the the mountain who have been our sworn mortal enemies for a thousand years why do we hate the people who we hate why do we love the people who we love where are the sort of social boundaries that make us us and them them and why do we have manners why do we behave in the ways that we think are right why do we have philosophy uh it is as to bring it back to the quote that Macy refreshed us on at the beginning of the episode, the little lies versus the big lies. And I would say that when you're within a culture, you frequently don't see the communication vectors um, that teach you these things, right? Right. It's very much unconscious and passively received. So if you're talking about the vector of myth, so how myth is transmitted, obviously mm -hmm. in 
both Bridge of Birds and Conspiracy, it's all very much about mostly verbal transmission mm -hmm. and how stories can change in, in the telling. But they've also got a couple of little aspects, like uh, Bridge of Birds has some things to do with clay tables, I think, mm -hmm. that were sort of destroyed mm -hmm. and then Archaeology. found. Archaeology. Um, but, also, but also what I found, what I quite liked in that is the idea of if you are actively trying to destroy an idea, mm. which vectors might stay around? Because there's an evil duke in this who is trying to wipe out the myth that these people find themselves trying to live in or this uh, quest that they're on. And they have to discover the clues sort of sidelong because the duke has made an active attempt to wipe out what he did thousands and thousands of years ago. And the part of it that has managed to stick around has stuck around in the form of a children's game. Mm -hmm. And so all they think, they think it's just a chasing game where the boys chase the girls and try and catch them with a red ribbon and then someone gets blindfolded and other people have to find them in a certain amount of a time period. And I love that idea that this person has tried to actively wipe out all trace, but it has sort of morphed and degraded itself, but it has hung on in that form. And I think if you're thinking about how myths have been transmitted these days, it's all about retellings in written form. Like the number of myth retellings in modern, the modern literary landscape mm -hmm. is huge. But if we're thinking about the myths that are forming and the stories that are forming in our culture, I think Macy had some interesting things to say about new vectors for myth. I do, yes. And I think that um, if we're thinking about our culture, millennial culture, let's call it, internet culture. Um, so much of it is written, but it's also passed around in a way that oral storytelling would have been passed around. And Alex is showing me her cat. You wanted me to wave my cat at That's you. That's true. We have to have a brief pause, listeners, to appreciate the cat, which is actually precisely my next point. Oh, <laughs> what wonderful title. I will, I will make it. I will make it my next I, I thought this was, this was like a whole bit that you were doing about cat memes. Yes, exactly. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> Damn it, this is good. <laughs> so as Alex has kindly demonstrated, there are certain aspects of internet culture, like the fact that everybody loves a cat picture, um, that are used to transmit information. So think of the doge memes or the Ermagerd Gersbrumps meme. <laughs> We will use those formats and those templates and convey a huge amount of information just in the context cues. What was the amazing Sassine Pazim Peep Tumblr meme? The amazing what? It was a picture, there was a picture of the picture from the Sassine Pazim Peep uh, piece of artwork and all it had underneath it was bitch I might be. That's amazing. That's... I never saw that, but oh, 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 oh. who loves Magritte, that is amazing. I had no idea what you were talking about because I don't speak French. You're talking about the pipe meme. Yes. The, <laughs> the, 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 this is not a pipe. This is not a pipe. The picture. It's, pipe the picture it's the picture of the pipe. And the caption is, this is not a pipe, because of course it's not a pipe, it's a picture of a pipe. And then the yep. caption says, bitch, I might be, which is hilarious. Three millennials attempt to discuss a visual meme via <laughs> video chat. Listen, you said a bunch of sounds, and I was like, what the fuck is she talking about? Ceci n'est pas une It's really yeah. very straightforward. Bitch, I might anyway, be. Anyway, I'm, I'm getting very off track. My point was that um, memes and creepypasta are our modern form of mythology. They are our way of passing ideas from hand to hand. And even if you see a story 
that's clearly not true. Um, a story about being haunted in a hotel room or some weird thing that happened to you at the drive-through and you know it's been copy pasted around a bunch of times, we are still drawn in. We know it's a lie, but it doesn't matter because it engages with us and it talks to us. Like when you see that Tumblr post where it says, reblog this in 10 seconds or you will suffer seven oh, years gosh. of bad luck and you have to. Like, you Alex know it's not to. true. This is but fact. you gotta. Alex has to. Are you kidding? I'm like, I look at those and I'm just like, well, that's just Most stupid. of the time. Alex <laughs> has to. I'm not making any other statement really? than that. I, okay, oh. a lot of the time <laughs> I can dodge it, but I have uh -huh. the impulse. I have the impulse where it's like, I gotta, and then it's like, no, I don't gotta. And a lot of the times if it's a positive thing, like reblog this in 10 seconds for good luck with your next, with your job, or reblog this in 10 seconds and money will come your way, something like that. I'm like, sure, might, might work, might work, you don't know. No, see, I, I just have an inbuilt... Uh, stubbornness against doing anything that I have been yes, directly yes, told. Yes, exactly. To do. Um, <laughs> and I refuse to. This may be. This may be. Um, this may be a Commonwealth thing. This explains a lot about the difference between <laughs> the two of you and me. <laughs> yeah, it's it's fair. But this actually brings me back again to our world building piece because the vectors for mythology. I mean, children are always a vector for well anything, but. The internet is a vector for us. Text message is a vector for us. TV is a vector for us. When you're building a secondary world particularly, and this goes for space opera as well as fantasy, ask yourself how are people conveying their myths? What are the vectors? There's a really great Astolat fanfic, because this wouldn't be an episode without a mention of Astolat. Take a drink. But it's, it, take a drink. Called yep. Incomplete, which is a Witcher fanfic about Emir trying to destroy a song that is being sung about him that is insulting and that is making people think badly of him. And so in that universe, um, in the Witcher universe, bards are the vector mm -hmm. for story. And in Alex's universe, chants are the vector for story. There, I want to in... point out, they're not the only vector for story. No, they're one all, of several, but yes. There's always many, but ask yourself like, is there a particular way that your culture tells and receives story? Mm -hmm. What does that say about them? What does that say about the people? And what does that say about which stories come through clearly? And what are their superstitions? And mm -hmm. because myths and things like that, a lot of times we say myth and we think of like the big, shiny, sort of noble ones, like the ones we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, Isis and Freya and Thor and Persephone. But right. myth is often small things as well, like you don't pick up a penny if it's tail side up or you don't step on a crack because it'll break your mother's back that kind of thing or i would never buy a bush of rosemary because that would be a curse on my house you have to be gifted with rosemary. I think they just grew up mm. in an extremely pragmatic household. is that true would you not <laughs> no i would never i would never buy rosemary never huh cool. i would i would ask other people to gift me it but i would never buy it You'd never buy it for yourself. I would never buy a plant of rosemary because a gift of rosemary is a blessing for your house and a purchased piece of rosemary is faking that and is thus a curse. And that's maybe a very North Yorkshire thing or it might be Italian through my grandmother and I don't know where it comes from, but I know that my mother told me and you just don't do it. I'm fascinated by this. I just have to clarify. So if I go to the store and I purchase rosemary for you, that's fine. Yes, that's a gift. Okay. It's not as good as if you had it growing and you bought me some, and you bought me some, 
like it's better if it comes from your personal rosemary bush that oh, you already have. Okay, cool, cool, cool. I do in fact have a personal rosemary bush, so we're fine. <laughs> my favorite my favorite version of that type of superstition is I think it's a Russian one. I don't know if it's just Russian or if it's like Slavic in general that you can't buy yourself knives. Oh, I know that one, yeah. You'll cut something to do with cutting the luck, somebody else has to buy them for you. Which I love. I love I love hearing about superstition and story. But I personally am the kind of person who has sat down with a hammer and smashed three three mirrors in order to make a home project. Firstly, so... I, I firstly believe you, and secondly, this is a great character detail. That is a great character detail. It's also something I that have deeply no troubles me. Whatsoever, I have no lucky charms. I have no lucky actions. I have there's no superstitions that I adhere to, and I think it's just the way I grew up. Like my parents had none. I am deeply superstitious. Always. I mean, and my parents were atheists and were like very like Alex not into this sort of thing. Oh no, no, that's not true. I have one. I have one superstition. It is culturally acquired. Is via it my about bushfires? You never know. <laughs> No, you never, ever, in a medical practice, and especially in an emergency department, say the word quiet. Because as soon as you say, it's quiet today, Ooh. you will have 30 patients show yep. up and the day will go to shit. That is my only superstition. And you will not find anybody who's worked in a hospital or a medical profession who does not have that. And you will not find anybody in a tech firm who is the emergency response group saying that either. Oh, the page has been really quiet today. Everyone turns around and goes, you said what? Go outside, turn around three times and spit. Spit. <laughs> which is from, which is from uh, theater superstitions where you don't say the word Shakespeare. Mm. Or where you, Shakespeare. Yeah. You don't say the word Macbeth. The Scottish play. Yeah, the Scottish play. The Scottish play, play Alex. Yeah, see, I, like, I, I, will, I would adhere to theater superstitions and I will adhere to medical superstitions. I have zero belief in them. Mm but I enjoy them as shared behavior because they are society bonding. Yes, they are. Exactly. It's true. And I think that in our world, we have the benefit of knowing that these things aren't true, but that gets a little bit more complicated when we're talking about a fantasy world and you need to start figuring out, well, how important is it to figure out whether your myths are true or not? I think it depends what you're doing with them. So the example that I had here is the series of books which I am going to drag you to kicking and screaming Ugh. into reading, which is Megan Whalen Turner's Thief series, which I'm sure I've mentioned three or four times already. Just three or four. We'll get just there. Just three or four. But just three or four. But it is a series where the mythology is incredibly integral to the world building and to the characters themselves, where the gods are very much real beings who have real impact on some of the characters. But it's not done with every character and it's only done with a light touch. So for a lot of the people who inhabit that world, there may be some doubt as to whether the gods are real. The shared behaviors that they have very much are that of an active religion rather than here are some stories from long ago, although they tell the stories from long ago, but there are a couple of characters with whom the gods have a very personal relationship. And so you can have this spread of how true a myth is to an individual character. But if you're reading it as a reader, you have to kind of accept on, not on faith, but on the evidence presented to you that the gods are real and therefore that the stories being told are at least partially real, but you don't know how much those myths may have changed in the interim. So it's a little bit like um, the Alana the Lioness books, the first Tortel books. Before we really get into the gods, all we have is this one goddess gives this one girl a cat. That's all we have. Yeah, as gifts from the gods go, cats are pretty good ones. It's true. 
compared compared to what you could be given by you the gods. Which one of my favorite scenes in one of the thief books is where one of the the characters is essentially sulking, and that is what he's doing. He won't admit it because he's, it's his point of view, and he won't admit it. But the gods send him a message, and the message is essentially stop sulking. I love them. I love this already, and I think that actually is quite similar to how Pratchett treats legend. Pratchett is all about legends. He has so many legends. Mm -hmm. And the problem with Pratchett's legends is they're virtually all true. And everybody involved is extremely grumpy about this fact. Yes. And a lot of times people are kind of genre savvy about it too. So they recognize when they're in one and go, oh, God. <laughs> and, his, and his bits are very much circular in that they're all about on the disc world, the power of story and the power of belief can shape Mm -hmm. reality so if you tell a story about a god the god is real the more you believe in the god the more power the god has and narrative has its own power so i think it's difficult to, to say in that one that everything is true it's not that the gods existed and then people told stories about them it's the other way around right exactly and i think that we see this quite a lot with some of um i know some of the tv shows that i love watching and i think that you love as well freya you see a lot of tv shows doing this thing where they take an existing character and transform them into someone who is a legend um, someone who has stories told about them. And I think that you had a point about like one of the very early examples of this happening. Yes, I think this is a, as if you are talking about a myth, and especially if you are writing a story that is heavily based in myth or has all the trappings of myth. So Bridge of Birds is very much a myth in itself, but it is a myth about myths. Mm -hmm. And you have to think about is someone transforming a character into a legend in the story that you are being told? So in Bridge of Birds, Ox is a fairly straightforward narrator. And if you, it comes across quite clearly that he thinks he is telling you the story of a truly legendary figure that is Master Lee. Yes. So he is setting up this legend of Master Lee and he's kind of unconscious of the fact that because of the deeds he's describing, he is becoming legendary himself. Mm -hmm. But the idea of narrator creating legend is an old one and you mentioned Macy the idea of John Watson and John Watson mm -hmm. as the biographer of legend is a very old trope and so he is telling you the story of this Sherlock Holmes figure but through the telling John Watson becomes almost a secondary god in that kind of mythological pantheon mm -hmm. because you can't have Sherlock Holmes without someone right. telling his story right and if god you that's about... such a good point oh my god <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Everybody pause. <laughs> Everybody pause and Maya Freya. Ooh, <laughs> wow. Yeah. And the and the narrator and the narrator in um in Let Maps to Others finds himself becoming a celebrity slash mythological figure. Like his name is forever going to be tied to the myth of this lost city. And he wanted it to be in an academic sense. He wanted to be known as the expert on it. But now, through various shenanigans, he becomes known as the person who found it again. Yeah. Yes. And no matter how accurate or inaccurate that is, he is telling the story of how he became part of the legend. But I think it's more interesting when you have two people involved. If you've got someone who's the narrator and someone who is creating the, the legend. Well, it's, it's interesting because it's about the storyteller and the story, right? And because, like, the person who is the legend, like, Sherlock Holmes doesn't quite exist as a person. He exists as the story that John Watson tells. Mm. And so you need the the storyteller to make the story live. And you also have a third person sort of invisible and implied, which is the listener. So you have three parts of this transaction. Well, conspiracy, you've got... 
Chant is telling other people's stories and thereby creating his own story. Like, I think Lizzie mentioned at some point that there's going to be stories told about the downfall of this country, and he wonders whether he's going to come up in it. I can't remember. Maybe it was I can't remember. Probably I mentioned that. <laughs> I think the cool thing with Chant, though, um, and we, we said at the beginning of this episode that his name is Chant, and that isn't quite true. Um, he his title is chant he doesn't have a name because he's not meant to be in the story he's not meant to be identifiable in that sense Nailed so it. he is he is the blank page upon which the story is written and being this much of an actor in this story is really not what he's supposed to be doing and he kind of knows that um and he is trying really really hard to remove himself from the locus of story as fast as physically possible because this shit is uncomfortable so how would he feel about the fact that one level up we have alex whose job is literally to tell the story of him there's a lot of levels going on here there's it's an (laughs) This is an onion novel. Levels corner. (laughs) Alex's fun facts levels corner. Onion of mythology. (laughs) But I do want to talk about levels a little bit in the context of um, TV shows and the the way that they level up their protagonists until they can't escape dealing with the fact that logically this protagonist would be a legend in the world that they've built around them. So I'm thinking particularly of Buffy and Charmed when I say this, and also kind of the Doctor from Doctor Who. Oh yes, the Doctor 100%, absolutely. I haven't- But like Buffy very much so, right? Like monsters know about her. Yes. And the Charmed Ones, monsters know about the Charmed Ones by reputation before they come into the picture. And I think that like the, the, the prototypical example of this kind of over-leveling, this overpowering of their main characters is Dragon Ball Z. I have not seen it, so you'll have to explain it to me. Me neither. Uh, so Dragon Ball Z just keeps leveling up the characters until like everyone in the whole world knows who they are and they're celebrities and they like appear on TV and it's it's very entertaining and somewhat overdone. I think Supernatural did this by mm. expanding the show's mythology. And I, I must admit, I haven't seen much past about season three, but what I know about what Supernatural did is that they they had to somehow keep making the stakes higher. Yeah. And the fact yes. that Dean and Sam had become so well-known, they had to come up with after-the-fact explanations for it. So they introduced prophecy and they introduced powers and they people go to hell and people have to be the savior of the world. And it, you're right, it just keeps leveling up, leveling up until they become the central figures in the mythology of that universe because that's the only way the creators have had to build outwards. They ha- they haven't got a straightforward narration. They've just had to keep piling on until you end up with myth. And I think this is a fascinating consequence of the instability of TV purchasing, where the creators never really know how many seasons they're going to get. But I think that um, the way that Black Sails does this, with the characters very aware of the legends they're crafting around themselves, reminds me a little bit more of Alex's book, because there is this kind of consciousness of story as its own thing, right? Which I think Chant is very, very conscious that story is something that is manipulable. Yeah. And something, and you're not really, he as a Chant is not really supposed to manipulate it, except he knows that. And yet. And yet, and yet. um, He will do a lot of things to save his neck. I think that um, this is the dual meaning of Vector from earlier. Not only are there vectors of story, but stories are vectors of ideas. Mm. Yeah, Chant isn't necessarily changing the story. He just knows which story to tell to which person at a particular time. Like there's that one, that one of the, the is it one of the queen? Yeah, one of the queens where he keeps telling the stories about a particular general, mm-hmm. and he's not yes. actually 
doing anything wrong from the point of view of his profession. He is just making a very distinct choice about which of the stories he is going to tell to what audience in order to have an effect. Right. He makes mm-hmm. a he makes a comment about how stories are like boots. Some of them keep you warm in winter and some of them chafe at you until you're sore and blistered. And like with this particular person, he's definitely trying to tell her a story that is going to get under her skin and itch at her and wear away at her a little bit so that he can more easily get inside her head himself and save himself hopefully and all three of the tent poles have that idea of story as a trigger of behavior mm-hmm. and myth as a story that can actually change the way people act so in bridge of birds it's very clear that these people are being told bits and pieces of a story in order to guide their behavior towards a certain goal which mm-hmm. only becomes clear in sort of the latter half of the book yeah and it's interesting in, in the kj parker story i think the narrator on one level would be quite happy if the story remained a story forever. He quite likes the whole keeping it very academic and being the person to prove things and (laughs) it just being an argument that someone is happening in the letters section of a journal, which is essentially what his career has been (laughs) up to that point. And then when he is faced with the fact that somebody comes in and is like, oh, well, I think I've discovered this thing and here's a lot of money for some ships and here's what the latitude and longitude are. Let's go discover it. He's like, what? Wait, what? (laughs) actually go and discover and then when he is confronted with the actual concrete evidence of this thing's existence he kind of has a meltdown about it (laughs) and can't quite and it never it doesn't occur to him to go he's just like well i've been proven right and that's to him that's the whole we don't we don't what happens after that (laughs) right right um so i think that you two had some interesting points to make about uh and we're sort of getting into this about stories saying things about the person who's telling them as much as they say things about the world? Maybe. Right. I think that um, particularly in fiction, when you're looking at, when you're reading a book and one of the characters is telling you about a legend of their culture or even just like offhandedly mentioning it, it tells you more about that character than it necessarily does about the culture because they are choosing to tell you for a reason or the author is choosing to have them tell you for, it gets very meta. It does. It gets hella meta. Some more onions. Yes. There are some more onions. There are some more onions. And the one that this reminds me of is the section in Spinning Silver where Miriam chooses to tell us about the stories people tell about her and her family and the other Jewish moneylenders to demonstrate the way that the rest of society justifies treating them badly. Yes. And you can tell that this is a very important and personal thing that she's telling you the reader because she needs you to understand right she needs you to understand her worldview and the things that she has experienced in order to make sense of the rest of the story and so the fact that that is the set of stories that are key to her identity as it relates to her place in the world tells you a ton about her personally and this i think is something that we can as writers lose touch with like if you world build uh, some legends or some myths about your populace about your culture there's a huge temptation to give them to the reader but you really need to ask yourself why is this character giving them to the reader does that make sense i have so many um religious origin stories built in my head for catalyst like i know exactly how the church in that book tells people magic originated but I don't think I can ever tell my readers those stories because everyone just knows that. It would be like, and on the seventh day he rested. I'm not going to come and tell you that that's my culture's origin story. I know that. 
you know? On the other hand, a fantasy editor is occasionally going to come in and say, you need to put some exposition here, <laughs> Freya. <laughs> That's a mood. As my agent did when she was helping me edit my book. That's the mood of moods. <laughs> That's true, but then you have to find the pieces of exposition that match your character and their mood, right? Because I think, because I am so used to writing fan fiction, and I also <laughs> I like it when, if you're writing close third, you're right, people don't necessarily think, oh, well, this thing is happening next year, and now I will think for two paragraphs <laughs> about what that thing is. And so I much prefer just not explaining it if the character would not know, but there is an expectation within the fantasy genre, especially where there is a lot of weight put on world building and the creativity of the society you've created mm. that sometimes you just have to suck it up and explain. I, like yesterday, had this challenge come up in my face and found an interesting way around it where I have to exposit about this particular role, uh, this particular job that several of these characters have to explain what that job is. And I did this by, I got around it by having them talk to each other about some of like the philosophical aspects like they're not talking about being who they are they're talking about the philosophical concepts behind it and accidentally expositing on the side you're you're basically doing the equivalent of two software engineers having an argument that argument about vim versus emacs which accidentally explains what software engineering means yes just so because of course like they care deeply about it nobody else does this is obscure and philosophical why are you talking about it oh because you're having a petty argument sure i can believe that yeah that kind and of thing i just noted that freya mentioned fanfic and dear listeners you may have noticed something about this episode there was no fanfic there was no what's with that well it was my turn <laughs> <laughs> and I couldn't really find a lot of fanfic that was sort of addressing this in the way that I wanted to, but I think Macy had some interesting was, insights about that. Well, I was thinking about this really hard as well, because we really do feel strongly that fanfic has a place in every conversation. But a lot of the times fanfic is already sort of this uh, tectonic plate folding thing of meta-narratives that you True. don't find many pieces that will address meta-narratives themselves almost all fanfic is built atop a mythos that already exists be that canon or a standardized au or a standardized trope like soul bonding that everyone just kind of knows you don't have to build it but then i realized that one way in which fandom does talk about like legends and myth creation is in the uh, I don't, fanfic model? What are we using to term this? Like Trope? Fanfic style. It's not a trope, it's a format, maybe. It's called a format okay. of the outsider point of view. Thick. Define a little bit more what you mean by that. I mean, um, for example, Icebreaker in Yuri on Ice is a short fanfic of someone who knows nothing about Yuri on Ice characters, meeting them and being confronted with how cool they are and the fact that they are Olympic figure skaters after knowing that they're as normal people for a while. So uh, there's another one in Leverage called Motion Parallax, in which a customer of the gastropub comes face to face with the hilarious hijinks typical of a Leverage crew. It's all about normal people confronting the reality of the protagonists in the fandom oh, and like yeah. having to deal with how cool 
and awesome or terrible they actually are in a way that we it, forget. It Yes, absolutely. 100%. I That is a fantastic insight. And I'm so glad. So Macy mentioned this in our Slack earlier, and I immediately forbade her from telling me <laughs> anything else about it because I wanted her to blow my mind on air where you could all hear me go, oh, wow. <laughs> it wasn't quite as, as mind-blowing as, as some, I'm afraid. I think I think it's top 10, but not top 5. Um, still, that's a, that's a really cool insight because a lot of times when we are deep with these characters who are so familiar to us, we forget how, how they look from the outside. Mm-hmm. We're so deep inside their heads that they... The, the perspective from the outside is completely skewed in a way different direction. And I want to say Freya, your King's fic did some stuff with like le- the legends of the characters, right? Around this? Yes, that was about, again, their deliberate creation mm-hmm. of the myth around yourself. And so actually, cool. that's, it was, I was also doing a lot of things with the idea of whether gods are real mm-hmm. and, or whether they're not. And you have to accept if you've watched King's that. God, God and the religious system there is real in a very Old Testament and not very nice kind of way, which was heaps of fun to play with writing. But I, I agree. I think fanfic can do a lot with that outsider point of view to do with creation of legend mm-hmm. because you can show a legend either as an everyday person or how people are reacting to it. Honestly, when you were thinking, talking about that, all I could think of was that episode of Community mm. where they – because Community is like the most meta television show ever made. Absolutely. Uh, and they have an episode which is from the point of view of everyone else at the community college. Oh, God. Oh, also, yeah. Where they're like, oh, thank God, these people. Oh, we thought we could have one day where it was just not going to be about these guys and, like, these normal people attempting to live their life when, from the point of view of the show, they are the background characters in the mythology of the study group. Have you have you seen those little tiny mini comics on Tumblr, uh, My Life as a Background Slytherin? <gasps> yeah, similar yeah. thing. I know, right, me it's too. Just, it's about how you try and exist if a mythology is building itself around you but is not about you. I yeah. love that. And, and fanfic does that very well. And maybe that's how you go about building the equivalent of a coffee shop AU in actual high fantasy. Yeah. Oh. So. Oh. Ooh. I think we have to end the episode right there because, like... Where do we even go after that? And also, I have to kind of go write that now. (laughs) Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely, extremely deep literary merit. I don't want to get all earnest on you listeners, but sometimes I really do think the mythological bases of the worlds we build and navigate, as storytellers and as readers, are the most important pieces of all. When I tell you my family holds it to be a curse to buy rosemary and a blessing to gift it, I'm telling you that I come from a culture which prizes community and interwoven connections between households. I'm telling you that to us, Plants are magic, and gifts are even more magical for the living bonds they cultivate. Those are stories, but more than that, they're the warp threads we weave our cultures around and upon. If you lay them out of true, nothing you build on top will hold. But we have something even more exciting to talk about in upcoming episodes. On the next episode, 
two weeks hence on November 21st, we'll be discussing one of those days where it just goes on and on and on. That's right, it's the Groundhog Day episode. If you want to prepare in advance, one of the tent poles for that episode is a short story called The First Stop is Always the Last by John Wiswell. So if you have a friend who's into stuff like that, maybe give them a heads up. In the meantime, please feel free to continue the conversation with us. Questions, comments, breathless adulations? Contact us at serpentcast at gmail.com, at serpentcast on Twitter and Tumblr, or join in the conversation in our fan Discord chat linked on the About the Show page of our website. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to review us on iTunes. And listener, I want to hear your stories. I just know your warp is glorious.